The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. By Maurice Leblanc. Narrated by Paul Spera. Sound by Patrick Martinez Bourna. The Arrest of Arsène Lupin. It was a strange ending to a voyage that had commenced in a most auspicious manner. The transatlantic steamship La Provence was a swift and comfortable vessel under the command of a most affable man. The passengers constituted a select and delightful society. The charm of new acquaintances and improvised amusements served to make the time pass agreeably. We enjoyed the pleasant sensation of being separated from the world, living, as it were, upon an unknown island, and consequently obliged to be sociable with each other. Have you ever stopped to consider how much originality and spontaneity emanate from these various individuals who, on the preceding evening, did not even know each other, and who are now, for several days, condemned to lead a life of extreme intimacy, jointly defying the anger of the ocean, the terrible onslaught of the waves, the violence of the tempest, and the agonizing monotony of the calm and sleepy water. Such a life becomes a sort of tragic existence, with its storms and its grandeurs, its monotony and its diversity, and that is why, perhaps, we embark upon that short voyage with mingled feelings of pleasure and fear. But, during the past few years, a new sensation had been added to the life of the transatlantic traveler. The little floating island is now attached to the world from which it was once quite free. A bond united them, even in the very heart of the watery wastes of the Atlantic. That bond is the wireless telegraph, by means of which we receive news in the most mysterious manner. We know full well that the message is not transported by the medium of a hollow wire. No, the mystery is even more inexplicable, more romantic, and we must have recourse to the wings of the air in order to explain this new miracle. During the first day of the voyage, we felt we were being followed, escorted, preceded even, by that distant voice which, from time to time, whispered to one of us a few words from the receding world. Two friends spoke to me. Ten, twenty others sent gay or somber words of parting to other passengers. On the second day, at a distance of five hundred miles from the French coast, in the midst of a violent storm, we received the following message by means of the wireless telegraph. Arsène Lupin is on your vessel, first cabin, blonde hair, wound right forearm, traveling under the name of Rrr. At that moment, a terrible flash of lightning rent the stormy skies. The electric waves were interrupted. The remainder of the dispatch never reached us. Of the name under which Arsène Lupin was concealing himself, we knew only the initial. If the news had been of some other character, I have no doubt that the secret would have been carefully guarded by the telegraphic operator as well as by the officers of the vessel. But it was one of those events calculated to escape from the most rigorous discretion. The same day, no one knew how, 
The incident became a matter of current gossip, and every passenger was aware that the famous Arsène Lupin was hiding in our midst. Arsène Lupin in our midst. The irresponsible burglar whose exploits had been narrated in all the newspapers during the past few months. The mysterious individual with whom Ganimard, our shrewdest detective, had been engaged in an implacable conflict amidst interesting and picturesque surroundings. Arsène Lupin, the eccentric gentleman who operates only in the chateau and salons, and who, one night, entered the residence of Baron Shorman, but emerged empty-handed, leaving, however, his card, on which he had scribbled these words, Arsène Lupin, gentleman burglar, will return when the furniture is genuine. Arsène Lupin, the man of a thousand disguises, in turn a chauffeur, detective, bookmaker, Russian physician, Spanish bullfighter, commercial traveler, robust youth, or decrepit old man. Then consider this startling situation. Arsène Lupin was wandering about within the limited bounds of a transatlantic steamer, in that very small corner of the world, in that dining salon, in that smoking room, in that music room. Arsène Lupin was, perhaps, this gentleman, or that one, my neighbor at the table, the sharer of my stateroom, and this condition of affairs will last for five days, exclaimed Miss Nellie Underdown next morning. It is unbearable. I hope he will be arrested. Then, addressing me, she added, And you, Monsieur d'Andrézy, you are on intimate terms with the captain. Surely you know something. I should have been delighted had I possessed any information that would interest Miss Nellie. She was one of those magnificent creatures who inevitably attract attention in every assembly. Wealth and beauty form an irresistible combination, and Nelly possessed both. Educated in Paris under the care of a French mother, she was now going to visit her father, the millionaire underdown of Chicago. She was accompanied by one of her friends, Lady Gerland. At first, I had decided to open a flirtation with her. But, in the rapidly growing intimacy of the voyage, I was soon impressed by her charming manner, and my feelings became too deep and reverential for a mere flirtation. Moreover, she accepted my attentions with a certain degree of favor. She condescended to laugh at my witticisms and display an interest in my stories. Yet I felt that I had a rival in the person of a young man with quiet and refined tastes, and it struck me at times that she preferred his taciturn humor to my Parisian frivolity. He formed one in the circle of admirers that surrounded Miss Nelly at the time she addressed to me the foregoing question. We were all comfortably seated in our deck chairs. The storm of the preceding evening had cleared the sky. The weather was now delightful. I have no definite knowledge, mademoiselle, I replied. But cannot we, ourselves, investigate the mystery quite as well as the detective Ganimard, the personal enemy of Arsène Lupin? Ho, ho! You are progressing very fast, monsieur. Not at all, mademoiselle. In the first place, let me ask, do you find the problem a complicated one? Very complicated. Have you forgotten the key we hold for the solution to the problem? What key? 
In the first place, Lupin calls himself Monsieur R. Rather vague information, she replied. Secondly, he is traveling alone. Does that help you? she asked. Thirdly, he is blonde. Well, then we have only to peruse the passenger list and proceed by process of elimination. I had that list in my pocket. I took it out and glanced through it. Then I remarked, I find that there are only 13 men on the passenger list whose names begin with the letter R. Only 13? Yes, in the first cabin. And of those 13, I find that nine of them are accompanied by women, children, or servants. That leaves only four who are traveling alone. First, the Marquis de Raverdan. Secretary to the American ambassador, interrupted Miss Nelly. I know him. Major Rawson, I continued. He is my uncle, someone said. Monsieur Revolta? Here, exclaimed an Italian, whose face was concealed beneath a heavy black beard. Miss Nelly burst into laughter and exclaimed, That gentleman can scarcely be called a blonde. Very well, then, I said. We are forced to the conclusion that the guilty party is the last one on the list. What is his name? Monsieur Rosane. Does anyone know him? No one answered, but Miss Nelly turned to the taciturn young man whose attentions to her had annoyed me, and said, Well, Monsieur Rosane, why do you not answer? All eyes were now turned upon him. He was a blonde. I must confess that I myself felt a shock of surprise, and the profound silence that followed her question indicated that the others present also viewed the situation with a feeling of sudden alarm. However, the idea was an absurd one, because the gentleman in question presented an air of the most perfect innocence. "'Why do I not answer?' he said. "'Because, considering my name, my position as a solitary traveller, and the colour of my hair—' I have already reached the same conclusion, and now think I should be arrested. He presented a strange appearance as he uttered these words. His thin lips were drawn closer than usual, and his face was ghastly pale, whilst his eyes were streaked with blood. Of course he was joking, yet his appearance and attitude impressed us strangely. But you have not the wound, said Miss Nelly naively. That is true he replied. I lack the wound. Then he pulled up his sleeve, removing his cuff, and showed us his arm. But that action did not deceive me. He had shown us his left arm, and I was on the point of calling his attention to the fact when another incident diverted our attention. Lady Gerland, Miss Nelly's friend, came running towards us in a state of great excitement, exclaiming, My jewels! My pearls! Someone has stolen them all! No, they were not all gone, as we soon found out. The thief had taken only part of them, a very curious thing. Of the diamond sunbursts, jeweled pendants, bracelets, and necklaces, the thief had taken not the largest, but the finest and most valuable stones. The mountings were lying upon the table. I saw them there, despoiled of their jewels, like flowers from which the beautiful colored petals had been ruthlessly picked. And this theft must have been committed at the time Lady Gerland was taking her tea, 
in broad daylight, in a stateroom opening on a much-frequented corridor. Moreover, the thief had been obliged to force open the door of the stateroom, search for the jewel case, which was hidden at the bottom of a hat box, open it, select his booty, and remove it from the mountings. Of course, all the passengers instantly reached the same conclusion. It was the work of Arsène Lupin. That day at the dinner table, the seats to the right and left of Rosane remained vacant, and during the evening it was rumored that the captain had placed him under arrest, which information produced a feeling of safety and relief. We breathed once more. That evening we resumed our games and dances. Miss Nelly especially displayed a spirit of thoughtless gaiety which convinced me that if Rosane's attentions had been agreeable to her in the beginning, she had already forgotten them. Her charm and good humor completed my conquest. At midnight, under a bright moon, I declared my devotion with an ardor that did not seem to displease her. But next day, to our general amazement, Rosane was at liberty. We learned that the evidence against him was not sufficient. He had produced documents that were perfectly regular, which showed that he was the son of a wealthy merchant of Bordeaux. Besides, his arms did not bear the slightest trace of a wound. "'Documents! Certificates of birth!' exclaimed the enemies of Rosane. "'Of course Arsene Lupin will furnish you as many as you desire. "'And as to the wound, he never had it, or he has removed it.' "'Then it was proven that, at the time of the theft, Rosane was promenading on the deck. "'To which fact his enemies replied that a man like Arsene Lupin "'could commit a crime without being actually present.' And then, apart from all other circumstances, there remained one point which even the most skeptical could not answer. Who except Rosane was traveling alone, was a blonde, and bore a name beginning with R? To whom did the telegram point if it were not Rosane? And when Rosane, a few minutes before breakfast, came boldly towards our group, Miss Nelly and Lady Gerland arose and walked away. An hour later, a manuscript circular was passed from hand to hand amongst the sailors, the stewards, and the passengers of all classes. It announced that Monsieur Louis Rosane offered a reward of 10,000 francs for the discovery of Arsène Lupin or other person in possession of the stolen jewels. And if no one assists me, I will unmask the scoundrel myself, declared Rosane. Rosane against Arsène Lupin, or rather, according to current opinion, Arsène Lupin himself against Arsène Lupin, the contest promised to be interesting. 